0: just a quick reminder folks we're just a few episodes away from number 150 our sesquicentennial episode sesquicentennial (laughs) that might be a bit much (laughs) that might be a bit much is that too much is that too much it's too much uh so a happy american independence day to you go out and celebrate enjoy the podcast share it with friends. Uh, And if you have great memories of the sesquicentennial celebration from the 80s, make sure to drop us a line on one of our social channels, like Facebook or Twitter. Tell us your memories of the
1: sesquicentennial celebration in Texas from 1986, when uh, we as Texans celebrate our 150th year of becoming a state in this great union of states. Also, we have a t-shirt. Um, Proceeds from this shirt uh, specially designed for our 150th anniversary to uh, recall the designs of the official Texas Esquicentennial logo. A portion of these proceeds will go towards uh, flood relief. And as a fun treat, um, we are also putting up some special printable versions of that logo that's on the shirt that we would like, um, if you're interested and you want to celebrate Texas and the podcast, Take one of those printouts, uh, take it to one of the places that we've talked about on the show. If you're going to be at the Alamo this week or this summer, uh, you're going to be at some other, going to go to the Battleship Texas, going to go to San Jacinto, take a selfie with our logo and uh, send it to us and we'll talk about it, we'll feature it, we'll retweet it, all that stuff. Let's celebrate Texas and let's celebrate our show.
0: All right. And without further ado, here's the show.
1: You know, I don't know. I don't have any personal, fun
0: personal stories to tell about Rory Orbison. Sorry. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski.
2: I'm Sean McIver.
0: And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was known as the Big O, a shy boy from West Texas oil fields who became one of the most successful and admired pop stars of the 1950s and 60s. His distinctive look and haunting voice made him an icon and led to an unlikely career revival in 1988, cut short by his untimely death. This week we talk about legendary Texas singer Roy Orbison. But first, what's your favorite Texan catchphrase or slogan? Well, I'll, I'll just throw it out there. I mean, it's... It's easy. It's everywhere, and it's probably the thing we're most famous for. Don't mess with
2: Texas. Don't Don't mess
1: with Texas. Don't throw your trash in the road,
2: please. Right. It'll make Stevie Ray Vaughan cry. I'm going to go with Texas. It's a whole other country. Because it was a whole other country. It was at one time.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go um, with, well, it's pretty obvious. Um, I'm going to say, come and take it because it's the name of our show and it kind of embodies the the whole idea of hey we're texas
0: we are what we are so come and take it (laughs) come and take it roy orbison was born in the north texas town of vernon on april 23rd 1936 his father orby was an oil field worker his mother nadine was a nurse but they both often found themselves unemployed in the harsh times of the depression The family moved, often looking for work, living in Fort Worth for a few years, before finally settling down in the booming far west Texas town of Wink, where his dad found work in the oil fields. Roy was a shy, reserved boy who wore thick glasses, but one thing was evident from a very young age. He was a musical prodigy. On Roy's sixth birthday, Orby gave him a guitar, and Roy later said, quote, I was finished, you know, for anything else. He learned to play by ear, listening to songs on the radio from Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, and Jimmy Rogers, and from watching traveling performers like Ernest Tubb or Loco Tejano and
2: Blues performers. Life in Wink was hard, a life that he later described as, quote, football, oil fields, oil, grease, and sand. But he made the most of his time. He formed a band in high school called the Wink Westerners, playing country standards and big band arrangements. They performed at local bars as well as on a nearby radio station in the town of Kermit. After graduating from high school, Orbison spent a year at North Texas State College in Denton before returning to Wink and rejoining the Westerners. They moved to nearby Odessa, and they changed their name to the Teen Kings, playing at high school dances and honky-tonks. In 1955, he met Johnny Cash, who was performing at a radio show where the Teen Kings were also on the bill. Cash liked Orbison's sound, and he encouraged him to call Sun Records owner Sam Phillips, who curtly rejected Orbison, saying, quote, Johnny Cash doesn't run my record company. Orbison wasn't discouraged, though, and he sent Phillips a record of a song he'd heard back in Denton at a fraternity party called Ooby Dooby. He'd recorded this at an Odessa studio. Phillips was impressed, and he offered the Teen Kings a contract.
1: Orbison and the band moved to Memphis, where they re-recorded Ooby Dooby, which became a modest hit on the Hot 100, hitting 59. The band went on tour with Sun Records label mates Johnny Horton, Carl Perkins, and Johnny Cash crisscrossing the country in support of their one hit. After a while, the road and questions over money got to the group, and they split up. Orbison stayed in Memphis. He lived with Phillips for a while, learned how to work in a recording studio, and honed his songwriting skills. He also became friends with Sun Records' biggest star, Elvis Presley. A song Orbison wrote for his young wife, Claudette, was sold to the Everly Brothers, and this earned him enough money to buy a car. He felt stifled at Sun Records, though, and eventually stopped recording for the label. Orbison returned to Texas to play festivals and bars. He quit performing entirely for a few months in 1958, and he was in dire straits. He was barely making enough money to support his wife and young child.
0: Later that year, Orbison got a job with the Nashville songwriting firm Acuff Rose and was encouraged by company president Wesley Rose, who saw potential in the young singer. Orbison also tried to sell his own recordings of songs by other writers to local labels. Fellow songwriter and friend Budlow Bryant later said Orbison was a timid, shy kid who seemed to be rather befuddled by the whole music scene. I remember the way he sang then, softly, prettily but almost bashfully, as if someone might be disturbed by his efforts and reprimand him. Despite the support of friends like Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and Chet Atkins, Orbison still struggled to find a recording deal of his own, being rejected by several labels.
2: Finally, in 1959, Rose introduced Orbison to Monument Records producer Fred Foster, who brought Orbison into the studio with Nashville's famed A-Team studio musicians. Foster's production and state-of-the-art studio style gave Orbison a polished professional sound that he'd liked before. It allowed the young musician Free Reign to stretch himself stylistically, exploring unconventional song structures and novel arrangements, including elements such as string sections. The result was Uptown, a modest hit in 1960, which reached 79 on the Billboard charts. The stage was set for Orbison to become an unlikely pop music idol. The first wave of
1: rock and roll stars, many of them Orbison's friends and colleagues, were no longer around. Elvis was in the army, Buddy Holly was dead, Jerry Lee Lewis's career was over due to scandal, and Chuck Berry was in jail. Teen idol crooners and generic doo bands dominated the airwaves when Orbison's next single debuted. Backed by the Anita Care singers, Orbison sang a haunting and plaintive falsetto that perfectly captured the feeling of unrequited love and loss. Only the Lonely quickly shot up the billboard charts, hitting number two in the U.S. and number one in the U.K. Blue Angel, I'm Hurtin', and I Can't Stop Loving You followed, and in 1961, he hit number one in the United States with Running Scared. It's a complex and emotionally vulnerable ballad where he abandoned his falsetto and simply hit an astonishing high natural A. The equally plain of Crying hit number two and Dream Baby hit number four in 1962. Roy Orbison was
0: a star. Orbison was a star unlike any other at the time. He wasn't a photogenic teen idol. Always concerned about his looks, Orbison had been dyeing his hair jet black since he was in his teens. Like most of his family, he had extremely poor vision and wore thick glasses. In 1962, he left those glasses on an airplane before a concert and had to wear his prescription Wayfarer sunglasses on stage. He found that he preferred them to block out the stage lights and from that point on was rarely seen without them. The persona he adopted on stage into the media was a dark, black-clad, brooding style that matched his enigmatic music. Personally, he was friendly and funny, but on stage, his poor vision, focus on his music, and sometimes crippling stage fright generally meant he was stationary and unanimated in concert. Years later, Orbison said, quote, I wasn't trying to be weird, you know. I didn't have a manager who told me how to dress or how to present myself or anything. But the image developed of a man of mystery and a quiet man in black somewhat of a recluse, although I never was really.
2: Through the next few years, the hits just kept coming. Classics like In Dreams, Mean Woman Blues, Blue Bayou, and the Willie Nelson-penned Christmas classic Pretty Paper all came out in 1963 and 1964. He was also extremely popular in the UK, in some ways even more so than in the U.S., In April 1963, Orbison was asked to replace guitarist Dwayne Eddy on a tour of the UK where the opening act would be a young band whose popularity was on the rise. You might have heard of them. They were called the Beatles. he had never heard of them, and when he arrived in Britain, he asked a group of people backstage, What's a Beatle anyway? John Lennon tapped him on the shoulder and replied, I am. On opening night, Orbison realized from the local press that this opening band was actually more popular. And he chose to go on stage first, even though he was the more established act. The future Fab Four stood dumbfounded backstage as Orbison performed completely still and simply sang, and did so through 14 encores. Finally, as the audience continued chanting, We Want Roy, Lennon and McCartney prevented Orbison from going on for a 15th time by physically holding him back. Ringo later said, In Glasgow, we were all backstage listening to the tremendous applause he was getting. He was just standing there, not moving or anything. The tour led to the two acts becoming close friends, a process made easier by the fact that the Beatles greatly admired his work. While he was over there, an Australian DJ gave him the name The Big O, which followed him back to the States.
1: 1963 saw Orbison travel the world, going to Australia with the Beach Boys, the UK, and Ireland again, and back to Australia with the Rolling Stones in 1964. He also had his biggest, most iconic kid ever, Oh, Pretty Woman, which hit number one for 14 weeks in the U.S. in 1964, and also was another number one in the U.K. In fact, for 68 weeks, beginning in August 1963, Orbison was the only American artist to hit number one in the U.K., doing so twice with Pretty Woman, and it's over. It was the pinnacle of his career, though, as his young English friends soon charged into the U.S. and took over the entire music industry for the rest of the decade.
0: 1964 saw the breakup of his marriage to wife Claudette and the end of his professional relationship with Fred Foster. Wesley Rose, who was his manager by this time, led him to jump labels to MGM, hoping to see Orbison branch out into acting like Elvis had done. The move was a dismal failure, with his sound lacking the depth and complexity of Foster's production. He broke his foot in the UK in 1965 in a mild motorcycle accident, but it led to a reconciliation with Claudette, and they remarried that year. Tragically, another motorcycle accident the next year resulted in her tragic death, which devastated Orbison. His one acting role, the western musical The Fastest Guitar Alive, was a massive failure. The late 60s continued to see him flounder, never seeming to find his sound or to adapt to the new sounds of the time. Tragedy also continued to haunt him. While on tour in the UK in late 1968, He learned that his home in Tennessee had burned down, and his two older sons were killed in the fire.
2: The 70s were lean years for Orbison as he dealt with the tragedies of his life. He remarried a young German woman named Barbara and continued to tour country music venues and to record songs. His albums were not successful in the U.S. and the U.K., though he did remain popular in Europe and Australia. In 1977, he had to have triple bypass surgery due to clogged arteries, and he struggled with his health for the rest of his life. He had a few hints at comebacks over the years, including winning a Grammy in a duet with Emmylou Harris in 1980. It was his influence on other musicians, though, that did the most to keep interest in him alive, even if modestly so. Sonny James, Glen Campbell, Linda Ronstadt, and even Van Halen had hits with Roar songs in the late 70s and early 80s. Other musicians, such as Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, John Lennon, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Robert Plant, and Elton John all praised him, and cited his influence on their musical style. He cultivated friendships and collaborated with artists as diverse as ELO's Jeff Lynn, Katie Lang, and Glenn Danzig. He co-wrote the song Life Fades Away with Danzig, and he won another Grammy with Lang in 1987 for their duet of his classic song Crying.
1: 1987 was a surprising breakout year for Orbison. In addition to the Grammy, he released an album of his re-recorded greatest hits titled In Dreams that became a huge hit. He was inducted that year into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by his friend Bruce Springsteen, who cited Orbison's influence on his own career by saying, I wanted a record with words like Bob Dylan that sounded like Phil Spector, but most of all, I wanted to sing like Roy Orbison. Now everyone knows that no one sings like Roy Orbison. Orbison said that the speech and the induction was validation for all the years he'd spent in the music
0: industry. A concert video featuring Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Tom Waits, Elvis Costello, and Katie Lang became a hit video that year and led to more projects. Orbison began collaborating with Lynn on a new album which would be titled Mystery Girl after a song which had been written for Orbison by another admirer, U2's Bono. Lynn, Orbison, and George Harrison, who was himself working on an album with Lynn, all had lunch one day and decided to have Orbison sing on one of Harrison's tracks. They called up Bob Dylan, who lived near the restaurant, to see if they could use his home studio to record the track. Harrison stopped by Tom Petty's house to pick up a guitar he'd left there and invited him along. The five music legends sat around at Bob Dylan's house, and by the end of the evening, the hit song Handle With Care and The Traveling Wilburys were born. Within a few days, they had an entire album worth of material, and it was clear that the four younger musicians were in awe of their fictional half-brother. Lynn said, quote, Everybody just sat there going, wow, it's Roy Orbison. Even though he's become your pal and you're hanging out and having a laugh and going to dinner, as soon as he gets behind that mic and he's doing his business, suddenly it's shutter time. The album spent 53 weeks on the charts, reaching number 3 and winning a Grammy for Best Performance by a Duo or Group.
2: Orbison continued to work with Lynn on Mystery Girl as well as other Lynn projects, such as singing background vocals on Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever, as well as the second Wilburys album. Mystery Girl featured songs co-written with Elvis Costello, Tom Petty, and Roy Orbison's own son Wesley. The album was completed in 1988 and put into post-production. And Orbison increased his touring to prepare for the album's release. He even recorded a music video for what would be the first single. On December fourth, nineteen eighty-eight, while he was at his mother's home in Tennessee on a break between trips to Europe, Roy Orbison suffered a fatal heart attack, and he died. He was only fifty-two years old. Mystery Girl was released in February, reaching number five on the U.S. album charts and number two in the U.K. The song "You Got It," co-written with Tom Petty, was a huge hit, and along with the Traveling Wilburys album made Orbison the first artist to have two albums in the top five charts since Elvis Presley.
1: Orbison left behind a towering musical legacy. He was a remarkable and unconventional songwriter, a self-taught multi-instrumentalist, and he had an amazing four-octave voice. His songs are beyond iconic and came to define their era. Perhaps his greatest influence, however, is in the way he shaped the voices and styles of other performers. In addition to the ones we've mentioned, there's Dwight Yoakam, Billy Joel, Barry Gibb, Lyle Lovett, and others that have all cited Orbison as a primary influence. Bob Dylan perhaps said it best when he said there was nothing like him on radio in the 1960s. Quote, with Roy, you didn't know if you were listening to mariachi or opera. He kept you on your toes. With him, it was all about fat and blood. He sounded like he was singing from an Olympian mountaintop. After Ubi Doobie, he was now singing his compositions in three or four octaves that made you want to drive your car over a cliff. He sang like a professional criminal. His voice could jar a corpse, always leave you muttering to yourself something like, Man, I don't believe it.
0: He
2: will be missed. So, Roeberson, as a... Uh is a great character from Texas history, uh, from Texas culture. And, uh, the reason why I want to talk about him is actually I have a personal connection with Roy. My great aunt cat, uh, went to high school with Roy, uh, graduated with him. Um, he grew up in Wink as we're at the same place that my dad did. And, uh, my dad, uh, talked to him this weekend. He gave me some, some good and stories. Um, he said his uncle who was in school with him said that, uh, cat's uh, husband said that Roy was not a, uh, it was kind of picked on in school because he had those thick glasses. He couldn't play football. So the other kids called him sissy, but he was very popular once he started performing music. And especially when he started showing up on local television, um, he had a, he would appear on the, uh, Friday afternoon, uh, you know, local music show. Uh, and they would, they would advertise for whatever it is, the local furniture store in Odessa. Um, and, uh, so that that was a really neat story about uh, Roy Gibson, you know. The, and Dad said when he was a sophomore in high school, uh, Roy came back for homecoming, and showed up and drove driving a great big Cadillac and got out with his sunglasses on and signed autographs and watched the football game. So, so that was a pretty big thrill. And then the last Stevenson story, story I've got actually is uh, <laughs> Roy's much younger brother, Sammy, he, uh, used to beat up my dad and uh, take candy from him. Until my grandmother, who ran the school store, uh, yelled at him and told him she'd, uh, she'd call his brother on him and stick him on him to stop him from beating up her boy. Hmm.
0: Well, you know, and that's the funny thing with, with I, it almost feels like a, a, a movie or a TV episode mm-hmm. or something of, you know, the oft-picked on, you know, small guy picks up that guitar and becomes an international superstar <laughs> and then rubs yep. their stupid faces in it.
2: Yeah, but he struggled. He struggled for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah.
0: his story, yeah. like boy, the midlife tragedy with oh, yeah. uh, the the death of his wife and his kids. That it really it uh, it echoes to me the story from when we did Willie Nelson's um, mm-hmm. Willie Nelson's history of that you know that tragic loss. And just I can't. It's just a, a really a painful thing to see, and you just you hate to see that in a in a story. But, uh, wow, like, what songs, what a voice, what a performer. Just so unique, very unique. Like, there's, mm-hmm. you know, it's great that he's a Texan, but then on top of that, just totally unique. I was really surprised by um, the number of songs of his that got licensed for stuff. Oh, yeah. Because I was like, well, I know they used uh, the You Got It song was t- a big, huge target campaign. Um wow. And but then also like he's done they've had a couple of his songs in um Kaiku commercials as well. So have some fun on the YouTube, kids. <laughs>
1: you know, I don't know. I don't have any personal fun personal stories to tell about Rory Orbison, sorry. But he's always something I've always enjoyed his songs. It's stuff I remember hearing when I was a kid that uh you know my parents would listen to on the radio or whatever. But um yeah, I mean, he's very unique. It's like you hear one of his songs and you, you ins- he's one of those voices that you instantly recognize who it mm-hmm. is. Oh, yeah. And yeah. um, you try to sing along and you just can't. So it's its just a unique and beautiful thing.
2: Yeah, those, those songs from the 60s were just so haunting and just, just that, that there's that tone about his voice and it's, it's that high tone, but it's just so, so smooth, but yet so haunting and so vulnerable and meaning, you know, uh, yearning you know you, you hear crying and it's just the saddest you know song that you can think of um, but I, I'm actually a huge fan of that traveling Wilburys album that album that group is just I mean there's so much star power in that group and the fact that you think about it and you think they were all sitting around yeah like like t- like Jeff Lynn said they're th- sitting around in, in awe of Roy Orbison you've got Bob Dylan, George Harrison, and Tom Petty in there, and they're like, Roy Orbison's the the star here, uh, but you know he he does his his voice really does captivate those songs. so and g- got gotta hand it to Jeff Lynn too, because you think about it, you've got Jeff Lynn, who's producing this this album, Tom Petty's Full moon Fever, George Harrison's Cloud Nine. I think he did Bob Dylan's <coughs> next album. And then the yellows albums at the same time, so gotta love it
0: well that's 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 sort of the way it goes is there's these these great artists, and then they sort of have a they have a bit of a lull, and then they you know right at the in end, end of their days they seem to come roaring back with some amazing work and uh, yeah. become very culturally relevant so yeah and
2: it's it's a shame that he did he passed away so right in the middle of that you know.
0: Well, he was just 53. Resurgence.
2: Yeah, he was so young. He would be 80 this year. So, but he, yeah, he just, it just, I remember when hearing Robertson had died, that was, you know, I was in junior high, and I, I do remember that.
0: Just to put it into perspective, Tom Cruise is 53 right now. Oh. Yeah. He, he's about to turn 54. His birthday is coming up.
1: Yes, he was not an old man.
0: <laughs> that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java.
2: I'm Max Shawn with two ends,
0: And I'm Scotticus. You know you love this show, you know you love sad Roy Orbison songs. So get out there, tell your friends, and leave a review on iTunes. Because that really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. Twist their arm, make them subscribe, people. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit Patreon.com/slash/TexasPodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> Stay home.